letter written by the Sheriff of Kerry, Sir Edward Denny Trudeau, provides one of the few accounts that we have of a parliamentary election in early 17th century Ireland, and an exceptionally detailed one, which demonstrates the local as well as the national issues at play in a fiercely contested return. This acrimonious election exposed and exacerbated local and family tensions, and these views subsequently played a role in national politics. The letter displays the tensions within the Protestant and Catholic gentry and merchant classes in Kerry, the abuse of local power by the administration, the spirited defence by an aggrieved candidate, because the election was rigged, a rare example of a Catholic succeeding in gaining redress of an electoral grievance, and the long-term effects of this stroke on individual reputations and attitudes, local relations, family dynamics, and on national politics six years later. However, it also forces a reassessment of the long-held view that the 1634 Irish elections were held in an atmosphere of calm, if not cooperation, between the old English Catholic and the new English Protestant communities. Parliaments were rare events in early modern Ireland, and they met only six times between 1560 and 1640. And each parliament saw a greater level of competition for seats between Catholic, Old English and Old Irish, and the new English Protestant settlers. A more thuggish electoral strategy on the part of the administration. A greater number of Protestant MPs, an increasingly beleaguered Catholic representation, and a higher level of conflict with the administration. However, accounts of individual elections are rare, and few of those that exist provide the level of detail given in Sir Edward Denny's letter. Following English practice, Irish parliaments had two main types of members. Each county elected two MPs, known as Knights of the Shire, and a number of cities and towns also elected two members each, known as citizens and burgesses, respectively. This was a strict hierarchy, with the county seats conferring greater prestige and a higher salary, but more importantly, a certainty that the salary would actually be paid. Um, and the citizens, who in turn were more highly regarded and better paid than the burgesses. However, once elected, all members have the same voice in Parliament, and they acted and voted as equals. The number and type of voters differed between the different constituencies. As in England and Wales, Knights of the Shire were elected by all of those in the county that had freehold worth more than £2 a year, the famous 40 shilling freeholders. Citizens were elected by the freemen or inhabitants of their cities, but the towns elected depended <coughs> entirely on their charters, and the new towns like Tralee and Ardford and Kerry, there the only voters were 12 or 13 members of the council, all of whom were Protestant. The government could influence the election in a number of ways. The most usual was to ensure that the sheriff, who was the returning officer for the county, but also managed the returns for the boroughs, the towns and the cities, through their chief magistrates, was favourable to the government, which at this time meant Protestants. So you'll find in an election year, the sheriffs are all Protestants. Catholics get to do their dirty work when it's not an election year. Lord Deputy Chichester's statement in 1613 spelled out their key role. He wrote, the sheriffs of counties are generally conformable this year, for which we did well hope of a good return of Knights of the Shire by their faithful endeavours in that behalf. But now we find that the vogue of that is likely to be carried against us, for the most part, except in the province of Ulster. The Lord Deputy or his officials could also nominate candidates, generally promising that those in urban seats would serve without charge, without wages. This was a significant inducement at the times, as MPs' wages could amount to a sizable sum. The total cost of um, wages in 1613 was something like £8,000 for the entire country, so it was an enormous amount of money. 
which had to be raised locally. Another means of ensuring a majority favourable to the administration was the creation of new boroughs. And in the early 17th century, there was a very large number of incorporations, and 40 boroughs were created in anticipation of the 1613 Parliament, more than doubling the number of urban seats. More boroughs were incorporated in advance of the 1628 Parliament, which didn't actually meet due to procedural errors. No new charters, however, were issued for 1633 to 1644. 1634, but at least four constituencies which were not represented between 1560 and 1613 did receive writs of return. In almost all of the new boroughs, the franchise was restricted to the members of the council, um, guaranteeing Protestant um, purchases. So Catholics' best chances of election were in the counties and the older boroughs, whose electorate included all free men and inhabitants. Wentworth's reputation, Wentworth was the Lord Deputy at the time, and his reputation for ruthlessness was absolutely legendary. On his appointment as Lord Deputy of Ireland in July 1629, James Harrell wrote, My Lord Wentworth is made Lord Deputy of Ireland and carries a mighty stroke at court. There have been some clashings twixt him and my Lord of Pembroke, lately with others at court, and diverse in the north, and some, as Sir David Fowlis, with others have been crushed. When he finally arrived to take up his position in Ireland four years later, Sir Edmund, <coughs> Edward Denny wrote in his diary, the 23rd of July, 1633, my Lord Viscount Wentworth arrived in Ireland to govern the kingdom as deputy. Many men fear. As one historian noted more than 50 years ago, many talents and achievements have been ascribed to Wentworth, but it has not been sufficiently recognised that one of his major accomplishments was a prose style of compelling authority and plausibility and that this, combined with the paucity of other evidence, was responsible for one of his major successes, that of imposing his own version of the events of his deputyship on generations of historians, approving and disapproving alike. Despite this caution, historians have largely accepted without question the impression created by Wentworth that he had created an alliance with the Irish Catholics and that the 1634 elections were generally a peaceful and polite affair without great contention, even though they note his thuggish and illegal actions in the Dublin City election, in which the sheriff was fined £700 and debarred from office for refusing to return the administration's Protestant candidates. According to Carney, it looked as if the pattern of future politics under Wentworth had taken definite shape, with the deputy, the Catholics, and a group of the Privy Council on one side, and Boyle's party and the main body of planters on the other. Aidan Clark noted that the inference drawn from Wentworth's behaviour before and after he arrived in Ireland was that he was conscious of the need to base a successful administration upon the clear cooperation of influential Catholics in Ireland. A closer review of the returns, however, and Denny's defensive account of the Kerry County election demonstrate that, on the contrary, the 1634 parliamentary elections were strongly contested in every area of Ireland, and that Wentworth's plans and actions demonstrate the difficulties he faced in ensuring the return of very many administration figures, including the top-level Crown officials in Ireland, amongst them Wentworth's close associate, the Privy Councillor Sir George Radcliffe, and the President of Munster, Sir William Sillinger. The Kerry election shows not merely the national pattern of these elections, but also local and domestic tension. Kerry, the most southwesterly Irish county, sorry, I'll just there, uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, uh, formed part of the plantation of Munster and a significant number of new English and Welsh had settled there. Tralee, which is here, okay, um, had developed into a sizable town with a community of Protestant tradesmen and merchants, which was controlled by Denny, who lived in the castle there and owned 6,000 acres nearby. Despite this, 
Kerry was still overwhelmingly a Gaelic and Catholic county, with the three parliamentary boroughs, which are particularly here, Artford, okay, and then uh, Dingle over here. So you can see that most of the county is not represented by an urban community at all. Um, they were fairly close together on the north and north-south um, coast of the county. Moreover, the county electorate for freeholders was likely to be small, as leaseholds were the usual form of landholding. The actual number of electors was likely to have been even smaller, because for many of them, the journey to the, of the, to the county election would have been time-consuming and expensive. Say you have a freehold down here, here. are you really going to travel up there just to vote? Wentworth deployed as well-honed, electoral and administrative skills in this election, claiming to have sent out over 100 personal letters of nomination. There is certainly evidence that he sent many nominations, but it's suggested here that they were not necessarily recommending 100 different men. Privy councillors were, as usual, deputed to manage elections in their own areas of influence, with Sir William Cylinder, President of Munster, the key figure managing the elections in that province. In April 1634, Wentworth wrote to a request to quote, keep the towns under your government from factious and tumultuary labouring for places beforehand, and to keep them free without engagement, and to send me a list of some 20 of the most leading men in the province, which you conceive to be well-affected and fit to be sent to the meeting, as well as your advice, how upon recommendations hence to the towns, we may get such others chosen as we shall have named to them. Lord Cork's agent, William Wiseman, who was MP for Boylestown at Bantonbridge, noted, much ado, for I find that the business is already in agitation in the county, although there be a course taken by several letters from Sillinger to the chief gentleman not to stir therein by parading a vote till the day of election. The clear inference is that the local Protestant community was not openly to discuss the likely level of support and who might be voting, so that on election day, newly created freeholders could appear to vote for Protestant candidates, and that is precisely what happened in Kerry. The Kerry County election took place on the 11th of June, and Shirley's return was made on the same day. Dingle and Arnfurt's elections were held on the 14th and the 24th of June, respectively. As the Kerry and Shirley returns were almost the, the earliest elections for this county, for this parliament, only Kildare's town was earlier on the day before, and Sillinger was a candidate, Denny had clearly been primed early on on his role and the administration's expectations. Three others, um, these are the candidates, um, so Sir William Sillinger, Sir Thomas Fitzharris, Valentine Brown, and John Fitzgerald. Okay. Um, Fitzharris was Denny's stepfather, and Sillinger was godfather to one of um, Denny's children. So it's a very, very tightly knit uh, Protestant community there. Um, so Sir Thomas Fitzharris, Sir Ta Valentine Brown, and John Fitzgerald contested a county election which was conducted interly by Denny's deputy, John Glenahasset, a second-generation settler whose father, Robert, was one of Trudy's original Burgesses and the town's MP in 1613. Um, Glenahasset was a cousin of Denny's, and his wife, Martha, was another cousin, and she was later to be godmother to Denny's daughter, Elizabeth. So you can see there's quite a um, network there. Glenahasset declared Fitzharris Fitz and Brown elected. Fitzgerald vociferously objected, challenging the eligibility of many of the voters, declaring that the sheriff took the voices of base peddling merchants. Despite this, Benerhassett proceeded to Fitzharris's house to make the writ of return, accompanied by some of the principal freeholders who would have signed it. Fitzgerald followed with some of his prominent supporters, including John Foyle and Edmund Hussey, who continued to challenge the return. Fitzgerald's objection that many of the voters were merchants in Tralee was not disputed by Denny who described 
For the most part of Tredean English, especially all the merchants, men of good ability, civil life and demeanour. It is certain that some merchants gave their voices, but of those that are chosen were none but such of them as have freeholds and therefore votes. It was not unknown for freeholds to be created in advance of an election, although concrete evidence is scarce, apart from County Down in 1613, uh, where it was alleged that the freeholds were created after the election, um, and again in 1640, where the contest between local Scots and English settlers was cutthroat. Credence is given to Fitzgerald's assertion, however, by the 1642 deposition of William Watts of Tralee, who claimed a freehold worth two pounds. Now, you have to be on your uppers if two pounds makes that much difference to you. Um, the smallness of this claim, and the fact that he actually couldn't sign his own name, even though he's described as a merchant, suggests that he was indeed a base peddler. Then he praised his deputy's calm and restraint in the face of Fitzgerald's violent assertions and offered to give evidence at a court of castle chamber case, the Irish equivalent of the Star Chamber, against Fitzgerald and to pursue compensation and damages from him. Um, under the statute which provided that nobody could interfere with an election. Despite Denny's bluster and threats, Fitzgerald wasn't prepared to be intimidated or to let the matter rest, and he appealed the return to the House of Commons Committee of Privileges, which, despite a strong Protestant majority, adjudged that there had been a misreturn and ordered another election, and Glenna Hassett's imprisonment while they investigated penalties. The second election took place on the 22nd of December, 1634, and Brown and Fitzgerald were declared elected MPs. Lena Hassett rather than Derry, the Denny for the brunt of the inquiries. Fitzgerald wasn't disadvantaged by this stance and succeeded Denny as Sheriff of Kerry, even though this was illegal because he was an MP. However, the disputed election had significant consequences in Kerry society and nationally over the following five years. The Kerry election had religious, ethnic, and dynastic facets. The tensions between the native Old English and Irish and the New English settler communities are apparent in every county but the 1634 Kerry election brought them into stark relief and exacerbated an existing family dispute. The four candidates for the county seat were important men locally and in some cases nationally or provincially. Three were of New English set settler origin, that's the first three, although each of them was at least a second generation settler. Solinger was based at uh, Donnerail in Cork. He was a soldier who fought in the Low Countries. He called his daughter Utrechina, which was um, born in Utrecht, so that'll tell you about his connections there. His wife was, was from the Low Countries. It was the third generation of his family involved in Irish affairs, and he was godfather to Denny's eldest son, Arthur, together with Lady Fitzharris, who was the wife of the next candidate. Sillinger was an unlikely candidate in Kerry, but he clearly anticipated difficulties in being chosen for Cork, although he was actually elected there on the 23rd of June, and again in the next parliament. Fitzharris was the son of the settler Sir Edward Harris of Dramana, a judge in the Court of Common Pleas, MP for Clonakilty in 1613. He was resident in Tralee, but more significantly, it was Denny's stepfather. Brown was also of New English settler stock, and his estate at Mulhead was only 10 miles from Tralee. Uh, but he was of mixed parentage because his grandfather, Sir, Thomas, Sir Nicholas, was an early settler in Kerry, and he married Julia, daughter of the local Gaelic chief O'Sullivan Bear. Um, by this stage, however, he was, he was a Catholic. John Fitzgerald, however, came from Old English or a Norman family, and he was to succeed his father at the Twelfth Night of Kerry in um, 1640. He was closely connected to many Irish peers, including Muscarie, Castlehaven, and Formoy, and was brother-in-law of the local peer, Patrick Fitzmaurice, Lord Kerry. Fitzgerald was hot-tempered but loyal to the, uh, the Crown. Fitzgerald's main supporters in the selection were John Foyle, possibly Field, a local physician, 
and Edmund Tussey of Brown, who was a member of an old Irish Kerry family, and Sir Valentine Brown's steward. He made um, Brown's funeral entry and oversaw his son's estate during his minority. Lord Kerry and his wife, Honour Kerry, Ballymaloo, County Cork, were Old English but Protestant, with intimate links with the New English settler community, including Fitzharris, Denny, Brown and Blennerhassett, as well as the native Old English and Gaelic families. Lady Kerry was godmother to Denny's eldest daughter, Margaret. Although they were married by 1618, the Kerry's eldest surviving son was only born in 1633, although another son had died in early childhood. Until that date, Patrick's heir was his half-brother, Edmund, who was the Catholic eldest son of Thomas's second marriage to Giles, the daughter of Lord Power. Lord Kerry had a long dispute with his father and he was regarded as a traitor by the native Irish on the, native, uh, on the outbreak of the rebellion. He fled to England. The election in Kerry divided the local community in Kerry, but it also had longer-term consequences for Irish politics. The reputations of many of the protagonists were seriously damaged, not merely by the misreturn, but also by pre-existing divisions. And the return caused these tensions to come to the fore. Denny's reputation in Kerry, sorry, I'll go back and show you what uh, Denny looked like. He's looking rather charming there. Please note his slightly reddish hair. That's quite important. Um, this, um, this is the letter that he wrote describing the election, and this is his diary in which he noted that many men fear, but he also listed all of his children and their godparents, which is where we get um, a lot of these connections. Um, that's from the Victoria and Albert, and they kindly sent me a copy of it, and the letter is in Sheffield. Uh, and this is from William Sillinger. So if you see here Denny's children and godparents, you see that Lady Kerry is in there, Lady Harris, the Valentine Brown. Uh, so almost all of the candidates and their, their connections are here. Anybody who is in green is um, an old English um, Protestant, okay, or an old Irish, old English or old Irish Protestant. Anybody who's in red is a new English Protestant. Anybody who is, uh, uh, but local. Anybody who is in blue is new English, but not local. Um, and anybody who's in black, I really don't know, okay? But what's interesting is that um, Denny clearly wrote the letter in 1634 when he was in Dublin. This is, Thomas is the only child who was not born in Kerry, and he's the only one that doesn't have Kerry um, godparents. So clearly he was using the opportunity to foil up to those who are higher up the social scale, and um, that he was. Denny's reputation in Kerry was damaged by the election, but the reputational damage spread to include his father-in-law, Thomas Roper, Lord Baltinglass, a landowner in the county and constable of Castle Main from 1603 until his death in 1637. Baltinglass had originally arrived as agent to the Welsh Herberts who had acquired land near Castle Island and had built up his own estates, but at this stage there was rivalry between the two families. Francis Lloyd, who was agent for the Herberts Kerry estates, wrote to the agents, that, uh, the, the, the Herberts back in Wales, saying, Lord Baltinglass was fallen in the opinion of the gentry of County Kerry, and willing they be to tread him down. He wrote that they'd done a lot of the names wrong because he'd only just arrived. Okay? Uh, the election of Knights of the Shire has made the county factious. Sir Edmund, sick Denny, made a partial return to Thomas Harris. Upon a committee, the return was reported unjust, and Lord Kerry, sick, upon a new election, righted. Lloyd added that he hopes to use both sides, both factions. Denny was at the centre of this close-knit grouping of Kerry Protestants. 
John Fitzgerald's resentment at his treatment led him to attack the representations of key members of this network. The fault lines had, however, been laid down before the election. Lord Kerry was in dispute with his stepmother, the Dowager Lady Kerry, and her daughters and sons, Edmund and Garrett Fitzmaurice, about money. And Fitzgerald, who was married to one of the family, had taken the part of his mother and brothers-in-law. The dispute was the subject of an award in 1633, but it had been financially ruinous for John and his in-laws, who had to appeal to Wentworth for protection from their creditors. Moreover, a decision in the case in Chancery only a week before the election had required Lord Kerry to pay marriage portions of £500 each, plus annuities, to his half-sisters Elizabeth, Margaret and Mary, which he had been withholding from him. And he also had to enter bonds of £1,000 each for separate, each separate portion. Despite being awarded the parliamentary seat, John's resentment against Patrick and Honour Kerry remained. The long-running and ruinous family feud and his resentment of Delhi's engineering the first election led Fitzgerald to attack the sexual reputations of the Protestant elite in Kerry. When Fitzgerald was returning from his sheriff's court, he was accused by some in the company of infidelity to his wife. You do wonder what they had been drinking. He replied by asserting his innocence, claiming that the accusations had originated with Lord Kerry, and he impugned Lady Kerry's virtue, alleging that her children had been fathered by Sir Edward Denny and Sir John Crosby. Fitzgerald repeated these allegations frequently and widely. Um, as you can see, at following places, the Sheriff's Court at Dingle, Nohar O'Callaghan's funeral at Abbey Dorney, the quarter sessions in Tralee, Scarp County Kerry, and in Dublin. I think he was enjoying himself. While he was ostensibly attacking his kinswoman, Honor Perry, as a whore and her husband as a cockle and a coward, he was also damaging the reputations of the entire Protestant elite in Kerry. And he repeated his allegations amongst his own community, the Gaelic gentry like Pierce Berter and the Dingle merchant families of the Trants, Rices, Hussies and Stacks, and in Dublin. The places in which he chose to spread the rumors about Lady Perry um, and her lovers included funerals and quarter sessions, uh, in Kerry. Moreover, he didn't merely denounce Lady Kerry and her paramours, he also played on the local loyalty to Lord Kerry's half-brother Edmund, alleging that it was wrong that he should be disinherited and deprived of the title and estates for a bastard son of a Protestant. Perhaps, and most tellingly, he was reported to have said that the Lady Honora was an unnatural and shameless woman for not imposing the differences between her husband and the defendant. So amongst the uh, allegations, the defendant said that the plaintiff Honora since her intermarriage was dishonest in her body with John Crosby. It's a pity that Edmund Fitzmaurice, the plaintiff's brother, should be disinherited with the son of Sir John Crosby. Um, that um, the, the Lord Kerry made the report of him, and he said if he pleased, he might report the life of the Lord Kerry, adding further that the Lady Honora, his wife, was even with him at home for the same and was incontinent with Sir John Crosby and Sir Edward Denny. Um, and if he were pleased to discover how often Sir John Crosby had carnal knowledge of his lady, and um, it kept on. Okay, so he was very explicit, and he even went on to say which children were uh, of the Kerry's children were fathered by Crosby, and which of them were by Sir Edward Denny. And he particularly says that the eldest son was a bastard of Sir John Crosby's, and the red-headed daughter was Sir Edward Denny's. Okay. Eventually, Lord Kerry took action, suing Fitzgerald in the court of Castle Chamber. The case rolled on between 1638 and 1640. At first, Fitzgerald was obdurate, declaring that he stood over his statements, then that he was not the first to make the allegations, and threatening those of his friends who had listened to or reported his statements, including sending a priest, Lawrence Griffin, about January or February 1639, to Ferreter to dissuade him from giving evidence against him. 
Slatkin, but Ferreter did vow to God that if he were forced to go to the devil, he would invent something against the defendant to break his back. And Rice said, the curse of God light upon him that will not assist Ferreter herein. Finally, Fitzgerald alleged that the accusations were part of a conspiracy to undo him, led by Lord Kerry, whom he alleged had initiated the rumours about his own infidelity, and Pierce Ferreter, a good friend of Lady Kerry's, the foremost Gaelic poet of his generation and a very talented harpist. Meanwhile, um, as things that the net got tightened, uh, a new parliament had been summoned for the 8th of March in 1640. Having been selected in an atmosphere of intense intimidation, it immediately set an example to the English Parliament and the recalcitrant Scots by voting a substitute to the King, accompanied by a declaration of the Commons' desire to support Charles with their estates and lives and an army, including for the first time in many years Catholic officers. Wentworth left Ireland in triumph to pursue the King's agenda in England. However, by the autumn, Wentworth was in serious difficulty in England and the administration's grip on Ireland was loosening. The Castle Chamber case which Wentworth had taken against Richard Boyle, Earl of Cork, which had resulted in a fine of £15,000, that's the equivalent of a million and a half nowadays, in 1636, served as a potent reminder to anybody unfortunate enough to be prosecuted in that court of the potentially ruinous judgments it might make of anybody found guilty. As Fitzgerald's position became increasingly difficult, with Kerry's case looming over him, the judgment due in December 1640, and his supporters vanishing, he urgently needed protection, and the most effective defence he could have was privilege as a member of Parliament. <coughs> Providentially for Fitzgerald, Sir Robert Loftus, MP for Innistee in Kilkenny died, and through the agency of the local Catholic Lord Mountgarrett, Fitzgerald was returned for a constituency with which he had no discernible connection, just as he was found guilty and fined £5,000 damages to Lord Kerry and a further £10,000 fine to the King. This was the first by-election in the Parliament, which wasn't won by the support of the administration. And after this, the balance of power shifted dramatically. And in a series of by-elections, significant old English men, principally lawyers like Patrick Darcy and Richard Martin, were returned to the Commons and played a key role in the overthrow of Wentworth and his allies. But they also dramatically asserted the independence of the Irish Parliament and Ireland as a whole. The Fitzgerald-Perry case caused a significant dispute between the two houses of the Irish Parliament, but it became lost in the turmoil of the 1641 rebellion, in which the protagonists in this sexual imbroglio were also involved. So what does this case tell us about Irish politics and society at the time? Firstly, it's clear that Wentworth's portrayal of the 1634 elections as polite and peaceful is simply one more example of his distorting reality in promoting his own reputation. The disarray of the election returns and the fact that this is the only parliament for which the Commons journals do not provide a list of members, although gave a full account of the procession opening the parliament, which was the most magnificent ever seen and for which Wentworth had recruited the advice of the Earl Marshal in England, who attended the ceremony, attest to an election littered with multiple nominations for the same person, widespread use of blank returns, and total disregard of the process. While the original indentures of returns were all destroyed in the 1922 fire in the Public Records Office, they were used by Lodge in compiling his list of returns for the Irish Parliament from 1560. And he wrote of the 1634 returns in the Hanover's office that, quote, not only several indentures or returns that Parliament were missing, but amongst those remaining, some were defaced and others obliterated, so that a perfect list could not be obtained. In many cases, the indentures that are there have no precise date. And, or the names of the person returned. For the towns of Newry, um, Carrick-on-Shannon, St. Johnston, Ballinahill, and Roscommon, returns were made, but no 
dates or names of MPs are given. No dates are given for Cork City, Downpatrick, Killalay, Bangor, Newtonards, Swords, whose return is to face, Galway County and City, Athenry, Chewham, Leitrim County, Mayo, Castlebar, Boyle, and Sligo. Clearly, the Kerry election was only one instance of a very fiercely fought, intimidating campaign in which Wentworth had to fight very hard to get his supporters elected. Carlow Town was burnt on the night of the county election, and that return was also overturned by the Commons. This, together with Wentworth's imprisoning and fining Dublin's sheriff for not returning Protestant candidates, should be sufficient proof that the electoral process was vicious and hard fought, and at least in at least the cases of Dublin and Kerry, illegal. Moreover, Wentworth did not find that his hundred letters of recommendation brought easy results. Many of his recommendations were ignored, and a number of prominent men, including his chief associate, Sir George Radcliffe, Sillinger, Philip Mannering, and Sir Faithful Fortescue, had to fight up to three or four elections to be returned. And if we uh, look at them, you can see that for each of these, um, if they're in red, they're, they are um, nominations that we know happened. Otherwise, these are people who were returned for several places or had to stand um, in several different places uh, to get elected. Um, the undated election, sorry, I should also, Guilford Slingsby wrote on the 22nd of June that Wentworth proposed to get him elected as a Burgess of the Parliament, but he was unsure of any success. And fair enough, it took him several weeks to get returned for, for Carysford. Um, this would have been with the promise that he would serve without wages, and since um, Slingsby was absolutely on his offers, this would have been a significant hardship for him. The undated return, election returns indicate a high level of use of blanks to ensure the selection of Wentworth supporters. The truly returns, managed again by Denny, demonstrate erratic levels of the use of blank returns. The pattern was repeated again by Wentworth in the 1640s, but this time, he threatened towns with the withdrawal of their charters if they didn't return the person that he wanted. Secondly, the, the episode, especially the fine imposed on Fitzgerald in the Star Chamber, is indicative of Wentworth's fast and loose approach to justice in Ireland. Fitzgerald's case added to the list of examples of his regime's disregard for subjects' rights and resentment of Stafford's tyrannical use of the courts was one of the reasons behind the 1641 rebellion. The 1634 Dublin and Kerry election returns were in the same mode. This attitude was noted even by Wentworth supporters in England. Howell wrote, the news here is that Lambeth House bears all the sway of Whitehall and the Lord Deputy kings it notably in, in Ireland. Some that love them best could wish them a little more moderation. The judgment in Fitzgerald's case bore a strong resemblance to Wentworth's Star Chamber judgment against Cork in the Old College case. Boyle's case was raised at Stratford's trial as one of the instances of Wentworth's arbitrary and oppressive judgment. When Cork um, remonstrated with Wentworth about the fine, he prayed Wentworth to consider whether injustice he could impose so great a fine on me. Whereunto Wentworth replied, God's wound, sir, when the last parliament in England break up, you lent the king 15,000 pounds. And afterwards, in a very uncivil, unmannerly manner, you pressed his majesty to repay you. You weren't really supposed to expect the king to repay a loan. That wasn't really what the purpose was. Whereby I resolved, before I came out of England, to fetch it back again from you by one means or the other. And now I've gotten what I deserved, desired. You and I will be friends hereafter. £15,000 was an enormous sum of money. And while Cork understandably resented the severe judgment, he could withstand the loss. For John Fitzgerald, the same amount spelt utter ruin. Fitzgerald was a man of deep honesty and loyalty. He apparently took no part in the upheavals bulls of the 1640s, and two of his brothers-in-law fought for Charles at Naseby, where one of them died. 
John was one of the few Catholics to be recommended to retain his lands in the 1650s. Intriguingly, he was assisted in this by David Crosby, brother of the man whom he had accused of being Lord Carey's, uh, the father of Lord Carey's heir. Incidentally, David's daughter was godmother to another of Denny's children. On the Restoration, Fitzgerald continued to fight for his lands. His character is evident in the letter he wrote um, in 1665 to his sister-in-law, Lady Clancarty, denying that he had spoken disparagingly of her late husband. He's trying to make sure he's got his land back. And he says here, it is the truth generally known that I have been, in the course of my life, subject to false aspersions, calumnies, and perjuries. Thirdly, the episode demonstrates the deep, if hidden, tensions between the dominant New English and the Catholic Old English and Gaelic communities at local level, but also the jockeying for influence within the New English settler families, such as the Dennys and the Herberts. So what became of all of those involved? Not in order of any importance. Sir William Sillinger was involved as a commander in the 1641 rebellion and died in 1643. Fitzgerald's supporter Hussey travelled to Killarney to warn English Protestants on the outbreak of the, the re, um, rebellion, and he became a messenger between the, the enemy and he, he helped the Protestants in Kerry uh, by sheltering them. Sir Edward Denny and Lord Kerry fled to England under a rebellion where they died, Denny in 1646 and Kerry in 1660. Lady Kerry, however, was made of much sterner stuff, and she moved to Cork, writing from there to Pierce Fertair, with whom she was clearly on excellent terms, to urge him not to join the rebellion, and addressing him as Honest Pierce, and signing herself, Your Loving Friend, Honour Kerry. In the letter, she also pays tribute to Pierce's reputation, as I have ever been observed to stand upon your reputation in smaller matters, I trust will not now be tainted to those of us who are your friends. Whatever about her alleged sexual adventures, she was an intelligent, educated, confident, and assertive lady. The pattern of successive Lords Kerry refusing to pay maintenance, portions, or jointures to their dependents continued, and many years later, Honor wrote to, Lord, to John Bramble, Archbishop of Armagh, seeking his intervention in a dispute with her son about her jointure. There is the letter. Um, in 1668, Lady Kerry re-edified a chapel in Ardford Cathedral, preparing a grave, quote, for herself, her children, and their posterity only, according to her agreement with the Dean and Chapter. Her will, dated 1680, approved in December 1681, directed that she be buried privately a night in this tomb, having, quote, not the wherewithal to bury her otherwise. She left all of her estate to one of her grandsons, not son of the next Lord Kerry. Pierce Fairchair joined the rebellion and was the last com commander to surrender to Cromwell when he was finally captured and hanged for his role in the rebellion. His poetry is still in print and widely admired. In conclusion, while the 1634 Kerry election appears to be a very local affair, it actually casts a significant light on the tensions within Kerry society, but it also forces us to revise our impressions of Wentworth's early administration in Ireland, and in particular his electoral strategy for his first Irish parliament. As Aidan Clark noted in his review of another of Wentworth's statements about the management of the 1634 <coughs> Parliament, shortage of other sources of information has tended to place historians at the mercy of Wentworth's letters. The quality of that mercy should not be taken for granted. The 1634 Kerry, Dublin and Carlow elections demonstrate that Wentworth's observations about the ease with which the elections were conducted should be treated with the same caution. Thank you.